Hello everyone and welcome to another fabulous archive from Restorative Justice on the Rise. This archive from December 5th, 2013 features an extraordinary conversation with Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and also is a New York University law professor, among many other things. This was an, a very compelling dialogue and as always, we aim to provide a public forum for important dialogue, tool sharing, connection, and education in the field of restorative justice and beyond. For more information about Equal Justice Initiative, go to eji.org. For more information about this series and how you can get more deeply involved each week, go to restorativejusticeontherise.com and we give thanks to the Peace Alliance for their sponsorship of this series and to you and your donations which make this important public forum possible. Thank you and see you in the near future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good evening everybody and welcome. This is Restorative Justice on the Rise an ongoing radio webcast series with the mission of providing a platform for truthful and open public dialogue, as well as mobilization and uh, key tools as we witness a huge transformation in the justice system in this time in our history. Before I get to announcing um, and welcoming our honored guest tonight, there's a couple other people, well actually one, in particular that I'd like to introduce to you. As many of you know, this series is made possible in part by the contributions of the Peace Alliance as well as all of the constituents that come forward to take part in this dialogue. That means you, and this is your series. This is for you to get in involved in, engaged in as much as you would like. It's always great to hear from you between our sessions um, Regarding the registration, you can always put in your questions for our featured guests. You can also submit comments and anything else, uh, people that you'd like to hear from on this show. To me in particular, I'm the executive producer as well as obviously your host. You can reach me at molly at peacealliance.org. You also will, as many of you know, again, have a chance to get engaged in the conversation tonight. Since we started just a few minutes late, thanks for your patience. We're going to go ahead and move through our normal hour um, in dialogue, so we'll be ending just slightly after the hour tonight. You can press 1 on your telephone keypad in order to get involved in the conversation, especially after the half hour mark. So tonight, I'd like to first introduce to you um, Mr. Dan Kahn, who is a wonderful fellow. He's working really um, diligently on the ground. He's the national field director for the Peace Alliance. And the Peace Alliance is doing a lot of networking and mobilization. So Dan, um, it's a pleasure to have you here with us tonight. Welcome. Thank you, Molly. Thanks, everyone, for, for um, showing up on this call, for demonstrating your dedication and interest to the kind of changes we're working to make in the world. And uh, I'm so grateful to Molly for having me on and also for the amazing service that I think she provides to, to us and to the world by highlighting these um, terrific practitioners and experts in the field of, of the, the rising um, to meet the challenge 
of uh, changing our system of justice, changing our ways of, of dealing with violence and crime and incarceration and other social issues. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Peace Alliance and Peace Alliance action teams. So the Peace Alliance works empowering civic engagement toward a culture of peace. That's our official mission. So we work to uh, educate and help mobilize citizens to take action, to change policy, to change federal laws and sometimes state laws to enable breakthroughs in peace building. And one of the main ways we do this is by supporting folks in local action teams. An action team is somewhere from about four to about 12 people. They get together once a month for an inspiring national conference call, and they take a monthly action that we offer guidance on. And these actions are geared to build relationships with your members of Congress and with media professionals to create the political will for breakthroughs in peace building. And when I say peace building, I'm talking about the tools that can really reroute what people call the schools to prison pipeline. There are so many, as you'll, as you're, you'll hear from our amazing guest tonight, um, from Brian Stevenson, I think you're going to hear about uh, the disproportionate um, amount of minorities and um, lower income folks that have uh, encounters with the criminal justice system and, and become incarcerated. We can change that pathway that goes so too frequently from schools to prisons by the kinds of early intervention and prevention programs. There are all kinds of programs across the country that, that can be promoted through legislation, through policy shifts, um, and through things like the Youth Promise Act, which is our main piece of legislation. So if you're interested in potentially forming an action team near you or joining an action team that may already be in progress, taking action to change the situation that you're going to hear about, please send me a note, dan at peacealliance.org. I would love to hear from you. Any questions, drop me a line. And um, thanks again to all of you and to Molly for um, being part of this amazing conversation. And thanks to Brian for also being part of it. Mm. Thank you so much, Dan. And again, that's Dan at the Peace, excuse me, Dan at, at PeaceAlliance.org. If you wish to reach out to Dan, please email him. And thank you so much for being a part of this tonight, Dan. So, of course, without further ado, and boy, am I just, I'm thrilled to welcome Brian Stevenson on tonight. And before we open up his mic, it's really a long list of service that this man has given to our country and to our world. And if you have not already checked out his TED Talk, I can't emphasize more what a powerful talk that is. It actually received the largest standing ovation of any TED Talk ever. And of course, Brian is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, and I could speak a lot about all the appearances he's made in, in a lot of major media and all of the work that Dan just mentioned, but in order to really get into the dialogue with you, Brian, let's just dive in tonight. And uh, I know that tonight we're also going to want to talk a bit about the incredible themes that you brought up in that TED Talk, but let's start out by discussing a bit about what brought you to the forefront of the justice transformation that it seems like we're within right now in the United States. Welcome, and what an honor to have you. Well, thank you, Molly. It's, a, it's an honor for me to be with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you and this wonderful community of people who are in, interested in, in, in transformation of our justice system. 
Um, you know, I got into this work uh, really uh, somewhat accidentally. I grew up in a poor rural community where the legacy of uh, racial inequality and racial injustice had really cast a shadow over me and my family and the people in our part of the world. And, um, you know, lawyers came into the community and, and actually allowed um, children like me, black kids like me, to go to the public schools. They were closed to us. Uh, when I started my education. So I always had a sense that lawyers and the justice system could make a difference because they opened up uh, the public schools. I started my education in the segregated colored school, and I never forgot that. But when I was in college, I was really not thinking about what happened next. I was a philosophy major, and it, it just dawned on me in my senior year that nobody was going to pay me to philosophize when I graduated. And um, ended up in law school almost by default, didn't like it, uh, finally had an opportunity to work with an organization providing legal services to people on death row. And that was the thing that really changed my life and changed my orientation. And it was actually meeting with condemned people who were literally dying for legal assistance that impacted me and made me believe that this was something not only necessary, uh, but something that was essential. And um, I graduated and went to uh, the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta and four years later started a project in Alabama that has, for the last uh, 25 years, uh, provided legal services to condemned prisoners, to incarcerated people, to poor people, to people of color, to children, to people with disabilities, to vets struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, to uh, disfavored people of all sorts, and felt very privileged to do that work. Mm. Well, you know, in your TED Talk, you, you share there's just so much that you share in such a short amount of time and so eloquently. But one of the things that, that really struck me was the story about your grandmother. <laughs> and I know we probably don't want to go fully into it, um, you know, the, the full story, but can, can you kind of sum up her influence that, that sure. kind of started you rolling in your life in the way that you did? Yeah, um, well, I, I did... I, I'm fortunate to have been really formed by some amazing people, and, and some of them are people like my grandmother. My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. Um, she was born in the 1880s. Her parents were born into slavery in Virginia in the 1840s. And the perspective um, that she had, uh, her, she was raised by people who understood that history, and it had a bearing on the way she raised my mom uh, and, and the way she raised me. And she was just a very remarkable person who had a lot of knowledge and insight. When I would see my grandmother uh, as, a, as a little boy, she would give me these hugs, and she would squeeze me so tightly I could barely breathe. And then she'd ask me an hour or two later, she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she'd assault me. Uh, and if I said <laughs> yes, me be. Uh, but she just had this quality about her, and, and she really did uh, urge me um, to do the right thing. And she was clever and savvy. Uh, and uh, really compelling uh, as, a, as a person who understood the power of truthful witness. I mean, my mm. grandmother told mm -hmm. uh, be willing to stand up even when everybody else is sitting down. She taught me to be willing to speak even when everybody else is quiet. If in standing and in speaking there is the ability to resurrect the truth into situations that mm. need it. And I've never forgotten that witness and that legacy. And I've been fortunate to meet all kinds of people. The first person I met on death row, actually, when I was a law student, mm -hmm. uh, was a man who um, 
I was really nervous to go meet because I didn't feel prepared to talk about any of the issues that I thought he was going to want to talk about. I didn't know much law, didn't know much procedure and appeals. And I was very anxious and very nervous and started just kind of apologizing when he walked into the room and I said, I'm sorry, I'm just a law student, I'm just this, um, I don't know very much, I can't probably help you very much, but I explained to him that he was not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And I never will forget him grabbing my hand and responding so um, so hopefully to that statement. He said, you know, you're the first person I've talked to who's not a death row guard or death row prisoner in two years since I've been here. And this is great news. I haven't let my wife and kids come to visit. And he was so energized by that, and we fell into this long conversation. And before he left that area, we visited for like three hours, and the guards were being kind of rough with him when it was time to end the visit, and I was feeling bad about it. But before we left that visit, he looked at me and did something I've never forgotten. He looked at me, and he closed his eyes, and he threw his head back, and he began to sing this hymn. And he started singing, Mm. I'm on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. No better place than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And the first death row prisoner I ever met uh, Mm. was a man who, in his struggle, felt the need to sing to me about pressing on higher ground. And it's those kinds of experiences and the people who I've had the privilege of representing and serving and meeting that have really shaped my perspective on why Mm. it's so cool that we do better in this country. Well, and I just loved the way your TED Talk um, closes um, with this sense of, you know, you really outline, you, you give us a, a bunch of great statistics, I mean, pretty dismal statistics, actually, but you're very clear about what those are. So you lay the groundwork out very clearly as to what the reality is, that truth of what we're facing right now in this country, in, in a criminal justice system that has really what appears to, to me to have bottomed out. And yet there's this, this coinciding hope, this coinciding ability to, that you provide there at the end of the talk of we keep pressing on, we keep moving on, and actually um, just at the very time, of course, that uh, it's the darkest, we know that the, the sun is, is going to be rising soon. And I, I just, again, I want to emphasize the, the power of that TED Talk for those of you that have not yet seen that. And there's a lot of great resources at the Equal Justice Initiatives website. That's eji.org. And then there's a tab called Resources. There's a ton of media interviews there, including one with Rachel Maddow, one with Stephen Colbert. And also, weren't you on Moyers & Company not long ago? um, And Michelle Alexander joined you, did she not? That's right, yes. I've I've done that show a couple of times. And... And, and, you know, you're right, Molly. I think that there are these data that we have to understand and think about just to understand the character of the problem, the fact that our prison population has grown from 300,000 in 1972 to 2.3 million today is pretty astonishing, the fact that we have created a system of justice that treats people better if they're rich and guilty than if they're poor and innocent is really pretty astonishing. The fact that we've actually now, for the first time in our history, created economic incentives, private profit motives, where you actually Mm -hmm. have spending millions of dollars uh, to persuade legislators to come up with new crimes and find new ways to keep people in prison for longer sentences, uh, speaks to a real crisis that I think we have to confront. 
and some basic understanding of these challenges, you know, the collateral consequences of mass imprisonment, the people losing their right to vote, my state of Alabama, where 34% of the black men have permanently uh, lost the right to vote, um, the exclusion that is created by all of this incarceration. I mean, I think these are the realities that we have to educate people about, but at the same time empower them to understand mm-hmm. that they can do something about them, and I absolutely believe that. Well, I love what you said um, so eloquently about wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. And then you yeah. went on to say something about the stunning silence regarding the state of, of the criminal justice system, re- regarding our um, collective silence, right? Can you say a few words about that? Sure. Yeah, I do think that we are all implicated. I mean, the bottom line is is that when we abuse human beings in this country, when we permit gross violations of human rights, and whether we're talking about slavery in the 19th century or we're talking about lynching in the 20th century or we're talking about segregation and the racial subordination and humiliation that went along with uh, Jim Crow laws in the middle of the 20th century, or, we're, or, or whether we're talking about mass incarceration, we are all implicated uh, by these practices. And uh, I absolutely uh, believe that uh, some of the things we've done have been absolutely cruel and shameful. The fact that we're now uh, prosecuting children as adults, that there are 3,000 kids in this country who've been sentenced to die in prison, some of them as young as 13 years of age. The U.S. is the only country in the world Uh, that condemns children to die in prison, that we have 250,000 people in prisons who are serving sentences for crimes they committed when they were children, that Mm. 15 states have no minimum age for trying a child as an adult, which means that 9- and 10-year-olds can sometimes face adult prosecution. All of these things present the kinds of challenges that I think we have to be uh, vocal about. And when we're silent, then we are implicated. Uh, And, you know, I've learned really simple things. My, My clients and work has taught me that we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. I actually believe mm. that if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If somebody takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. Even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. There mm-hmm. is this basic dignity that must be respected by law. Uh, the second thing I've come to believe is that the opposite of poverty in America is not really wealth. I, I believe the opposite of poverty in this country isn't wealth. I believe the opposite of poverty is justice. And when we commit ourselves to justice and we actually create respect uh, for all the human beings that have been too frequently marginalized and disfavored, then and only then can we actually confront uh, poverty. And finally, I've, I've come to believe that you judge the character of a society, our commitment to the rule of law, our civility, not by how you treat the powerful and the rich and the privileged and the esteemed and the celebrated, but by how you treat the poor, uh, the incarcerated, the condemned, mm. the disfavored. And that is a reflection on all of us. It's not just the people who know somebody in prison or just the people who work in the criminal justice system. It is ultimately an expression of who we all are. And I do think that, that we're living at a time when, where these questions are, are resonant for, for every, every person. A very poignant theme that, that was the core, again, of that powerful TED Talk was identity. Yeah. And you you said that our national, I think you implied that our national identity is at risk. Could you talk more about identity and um, what that meant, what that means to you? What what were you trying to convey in that talk? What how yeah. why is identity so important? Well, I think it replicates um, you know the, the the strategies that have worked most effectively. I mean. You know, we can all think about teachers who were great teachers, teachers who 
um, really cared about us and made us want to learn things. And, and anybody can be a teacher, but to be a great teacher, a good teacher, a caring teacher, a compassionate teacher, or a great doctor or a compassionate doctor or a lawyer or supervisor or whatever um, is a kind of a reflection of our identity. And to be a great society, a great country, uh, we actually have to be attentive to the needs of the most vulnerable, uh, to the most um, fragile, uh, the most disfavored. Or we become a country, uh, a, a society uh, that is all about wealth and power and protecting wealth and power. And I think that many people want to be just, want to be fair, but forget that the obligations of justice and the obligations of fairness don't always uh, resonate uh, with doing what's comfortable and what's convenient and what's easy. Dr. King said uh, the ultimate measure of, of a person is not where they stand in times of comfort and convenience, but where they stand in times of conflict and controversy. And I think that's true for societies. And so, yes, I think we've got to recognize uh, that our identity uh, matters. Um, you know, I, I've been talking a lot about race recently because I think our failure to own up to our racial history has really undermined our ability uh, to be just in some of these situations. It's the reason why the criminal justice system is so uh, disproportionately uh, targeting people of color is because we haven't really committed ourselves to confronting the legacy of slavery and all that mm -hmm. it's done. And then the 100 years that followed slavery that was really defined in my mind by terrorism. I mean, we were... We, you know, we didn't end slavery. We transitioned from slavery to 100 years of terror where lynching and convict leasing and all of these hate crimes and horrific violence uh, limited and constrained the lives of people of color. And that was followed, of course, by decades of subordination and segregation that the Jim Crow laws created that were humiliating and traumatizing uh, to people of color. And not just people of color. We have a generation of people in this country who are white who were taught that they were better than everybody else because they're white. And that's a really destructive and abusive thing uh, to teach a child. And many children are not going to recover from that on their own. We're going to actually have to talk about uh, what that legacy did, what that, uh, that distortion did. And we haven't done it. And because we haven't committed ourselves to telling the truth about our racial history, we haven't reconciled ourselves to what that history mm -hmm. uh, keeps doing to us. And mass incarceration in the criminal justice system is a perfect example of a manifestation of a country that has not reconciled itself mm -hmm. to racial, uh, racial bias and bigotry. That's such a powerful point. And it's one that comes up quite a bit, actually, um, and it's important for it to come up and for us to, to air it because uh, it, it, until we go backward um, linearly in that, that wounding and in the enslavement and in the atrocities, and get real about them, we can't really do any kind of true justice uh, moving forward, can we? And I think that's exactly right, Molly. I mean, I talk about the death penalty through that lens quite frequently. I mean, for me, the question of the death penalty in this country is not do people deserve to die for some of the really horrible crimes they've committed. That's not the real question of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. For me, the question is do we deserve to kill? Have we created a system of justice that is free from bias against the poor, bias against people of color, that's free from political influence, that's reliable, that's accurate? And in my mind, the answer to that question is no. And if we know that uh, we have this horrific error rate, you know, one out of every nine people who's been executed in this country, we've proved to be innocent. That is, 
for every nine people executed, we've had an uh, innocent person exonerated and released from death row, which is a shameful uh, rate of error. Uh, you know, if you were flying and were told that every nine planes it takes off, one's going to crash, none of us would fly. It's just an unacceptable risk, but we persist in executing people. And having a death penalty that's so clearly weighted by race and, and poverty and uh, the abuse of power. Uh, so I think our ability to ask these kinds of questions, changing the questions, changing the narrative is really key. You know, in my TED Talk, I talk about um, giving this lecture in Germany and, and mm. talking about the problems mm -hmm. of the death penalty in the U.S. And I've never forgotten how the German scholars stood up after I finished and said, well, we will never again have the death penalty in Germany. She said it would be unconscionable for us mm -hmm. to ever engage in systematic killing of human beings. And she uh, got a lot of support for that sentiment. And I remember uh, thinking about that when I flew home to the States, thinking how painful, how unacceptable it would be for me to be living in a world if uh, people in the nation state of Germany were still being killed in gas chambers. And then I thought about how I would feel if the people who they were executing were uh, disproportionately Jewish. And I realized I couldn't be silent. I couldn't be at peace in a world knowing what I know about the Holocaust. And then I got off the plane in Alabama and wandered to my office in Montgomery reflecting on the fact that buried in the ground are the bodies of hundreds and thousands mm. of people who were lynched and murdered, who had been the victims of racial violence. And then I go to death row where 84% of the people on death row uh, who have been executed are African American. And I think to myself that we haven't been honest about this question of whether we deserve to kill, whether our racial history, whether our commitment to social justice tolerates the kind of abuse uh, that we see day in and day out. And that's why I think it's such an important conversation. How are we going to get honest? How do you see that playing out right now? And, you know, one of the common questions, and that's a huge question, I know, but one of the questions that has come up um, in many of these broadcasts with folks from all over the country has been sur um, surrounding the Martin Zimmerman case. And, for example, what could we have done differently? I mean, unfortunately, the, it happened, first of all. But right. how could we have responded in a different way? What could we have done to stand up, get out of our silence, our complicity, and do something about that case and really dialogue? It, it seems like we missed an opportunity to me. Yeah, that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting point. I think, first of all, we have to understand that um, you know, the challenges we face require something that's not just reactionary. That is, we actually have to engage in changing the narrative, not only in moments of crisis, not only in moments when there's been some tragedy that creates a window, but we have to do it in the, in the quiet moments. We have to be building towards something. The civil rights movement, uh, people think that uh, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and it was just a reaction to this moment. Uh, people have been talking about protesting segregation on public buses in Montgomery for years, and actually several other people did with what Ms. Parks did and didn't generate that kind of response. You know, the boycott wasn't something that grew out of a moment. It grew out of decades of frustration and anger, and it required leadership and training. Getting people to protest nonviolently took work and training. And so I think we first of all have to equip ourselves to engage in movement building, to engage in reform. And then we've got to understand what are the real barriers, and, and, and some of the barriers are um, the political system that has been so corrupted by uh, the politics of fear and anger. We've allowed all mm -hmm. of our politics to 
be held hostage to this idea that you can never say a word like uh, rehabilitation or restoration or redemption or recovery when you're talking about people who've committed crimes because that's seen as too compassionate, too soft. And we've got to change the environment. And there are concrete things we can do, like being more vocal with elected officials about the importance of these issues. Uh, and then there are strategic things that we can do, which is targeting the places and the situations where our voices can make a difference. Uh, and I've seen some of that happen. You know, there was some wonderful reform work in the last election in places like California where voters are the ones who ended uh, three strikes laws and these mandatory long-term sentences. The political system didn't do that. It was actually the electorate uh, that did that. And there are ways in which I think we can organize voices to actually make these calls for reform resonate. Uh, we've got to be clearer in some of our messaging. Mm -hmm. I think I look at Trayvon Martin, and it didn't just start uh, the night that he was shot. It started when we started tolerating uh, giving people guns and encouraging to, them to use violence when violence was not needed or necessary, uh, kind of creating this culture where we think it's actually okay uh, to shoot the things we fear, uh, to kill the things we dislike, uh, to react out of our fear and anger. And we've got to kind of speak to that if we're going to actually get where we want to go. And I, and I say that for the George Zimmermans of this world, but also uh, for the clients that I represent, the young kids who have been traumatized and abused and are living in uh, households and neighborhoods and families where there's too much violence. And that begins a conversation that I think is, is necessary as we begin to talk about uh, remedies mm. and reform. Mm. Mm. You know, um, it makes me think of, uh, and just want to give a shout out to the Community Conferencing Center up in Baltimore, Lauren Abramson. She, um, there was a very powerful PBS um, hour documentary um, called Fixing Juvie Justice that came out not long ago, and they're doing some really profound work up there. And it kind of rings to what you're mentioning of not just addressing conflict as it arises, but even going upstream of it, and it really points towards what you know many of us call restorative justice. But we know that you know it, it has many elements and and um, factors to it that that can't really be pinned down to just two words. But the essence of it is that we're getting real with each other, and we're allowing a safe space for people to um, to communicate when harm happens. And, you know, we've, we've talked with uh, Fania Davis and the uh, restorative justice for Oakland youth folks. And um, that was another powerful session of, of a testament to, in some of our most difficult places in this country, the, uh, the power of really seeing somebody, you know, and, and allowing them time to, to be heard and and to come to the table with whatever it is that is underneath their perpetual or, you know, maybe not perpetual, but, but whatever offense and, and harm was caused. And I'm just wondering on that note, Brian, in your work with the Equal Justice Initiative, what are you seeing in the field um, as far as anything of that nature that, that I've just mentioned. Does EJI, I know you have a, quite a team, do you work with people in um, the field of restorative justice in peacemaking circles, talking circles, and practices? I know here in Colorado we've got a law that we just passed 
in four counties um, with pilot projects, which is very promising. So it's really rising up, and, and that's the name of this series. Right. Uh, no, yeah, we do, and we actually are hoping to do more of that. Um, you know, we're in a region where there's been more resistance to, um, you know, the power of restorative justice and, and the notion of interventions that are more therapeutic and holistic. Uh, but we're constantly trying to elevate that conversation and uh, looking for partners and people uh, who we can engage to kind of move that forward. Um, because I think you're absolutely right that it's that kind of intervention that has the greatest hope for not just recovery for, for the victims of crime, but recovery for a society that has been mm-hmm. victimized by our distrust of one another, our anger toward one another, our misunderstanding. And those kinds of issues really do require uh, the, the concepts that restorative justice uh, teaches. I mean, in my own work, I've been talking a lot about the importance of getting proximate, that we can't do the important work until we get close to the people and the situations uh, that we care deeply about. Because when you get close, you see nuances that you can't see from a distance. You hear things that you can't hear uh, from a distance. And um, those who have done restorative justice know that that's part of what uh, you're achieving. You're just creating proximity. You're bringing people together. And, and that in and of itself yields something uh, that can be very empowering. But the second thing is this whole idea of changing the narrative, of, of giving people space to actually redefine who they are, redefine their victimization, redefine their offense, so that they're not being labeled unfairly, they're not being put in boxes that then makes it impossible for them to hear what somebody else is saying because they're in this box and that other box doesn't talk to that box. And that kind of changing the narrative I think is really important. And then the third thing is actually being hopeful, and we talk a lot about that because I think where hopelessness prevails is where injustice persists. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. the persistence of inequality and injustice. And we've got to sometimes force ourselves to be hopeful, even when uh, the situation around us suggests something hopeless. It's important to be willfully hopeful, uh, even in the face of great controversy and conflict. Vaclav Havel used to talk about that. He Mm. said hope. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I have to interject here, Brian, because I just absolutely, Vaclav Havel is one of my and I'm sure many of us here, um, just greatest inspirations, his book, Living in Truth, and, and that quote that you're about to share um, is a, another key part of your talk that you gave. And I love how you pointed to what you're probably going to be sharing here in a minute about the orientation of the spirit. That's so right. go ahead and share that quote and, and tell us a little bit more about what that all means. Yeah. I think Havel makes an important point for anyone trying to do advocacy work and restorative justice work and reform work. Havel said that when they were in Eastern Europe fighting for independence, they wanted all kinds of things. They wanted recognition from governments. They wanted money. They wanted resources. But the only thing they needed was hope. And Havel says the kind of hope we need isn't that pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's not a preference for optimism over pessimism. Hubble says the kind of hope you need is really an orientation of the spirit, a willingness to sometimes position yourself in hopeless places and be a witness. And for me, the final thing that goes with proximity and changing the narrative and being hopeful is a willingness to be uncomfortable. I think all of us you know, prefer comfort to discomfort. I'm not excluded from that. I like to be comfortable. Uh, but when we look at 
the transformative uh, movements in this country, when we've looked at the moments of profound change that have been positive, they've always been precipitated by people who were willing to get uncomfortable in the service of justice, in the service of change, in the service of progress. The civil rights movement was horribly uncomfortable for freedom riders and for uh, civil rights workers and for college students who took long trips and put themselves in great jeopardy. And we can't expect uh, to end mass incarceration, to create uh, hopeful strategies in dealing with violence and, and, and disruption without making ourselves uncomfortable, going to places that aren't always friendly and easy, saying things that aren't always well understood and popular. And it's that commitment to being uncomfortable, uh, willfully uncomfortable, that I think we have to uh, revive if we're going to actually achieve the change we want to see. Mm. I just want to take a a brief moment here to invite our constituency and dialogue circle to join in the conversation tonight if you so are moved by pressing one on your telephone keypad and we'll get to you as we can for the rest or, uh, the remainder of the time that we have together. And I also want to make mention again of the Equal Justice Initiative website, which is eji.org. And for access of over 100 of our archives and for the podcast for this, this series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, you can go to restorativejusticeontherise.com. You can also find more information out about the Peace Alliance at peacealliance.org. You can email me at molly at peacealliance.org for comments and suggestions on the show and series. And it's always great to have your participation. We are the ones that uh, make the change happen here. And so this platform is an important space to continue to uphold the truth and to provide you tools and resources for what you're up to in your area of the world. So without further ado, I'm going to actually start out by opening up for a live question, but we have a lot of great pre-submitted questions as well. So let's start with a live question tonight. Uh, Go ahead, Catherine. You're live. Welcome. Catherine, Kat, you're live. Welcome. Oh, okay. Um, Thank you very much. Can you hear me? You sound great. Good. All right. So my question is this. I come from a southern state, and um, I know that it's very conservative there and that most people are not in favor of restorative justice. And my question is, how do we begin that process? Do you have any... um, special recommendations for actually pursuing restorative justice in a state where um, perhaps restitution and retribution are more the commonality? Yeah, that's a tremendous question, and I so identify with that concern because I work and live in, in Alabama, which is a state that has many of that, those same features. I think part of it is really kind of talking to particular communities about the power of restoration. Um, I think in many ways um, the people who have been victimized by crime have been misrepresented by dominant narratives that say, you know, the victims of crime only want retribution and revenge. 
I work with lots of victims of crime who tell me that, you know, they were promised all of this revenge and all of this punishment, and even when they got it, they didn't actually feel better. Sometimes they even said they, they felt worse. And there are people who are actually looking for narratives that help them reconcile themselves um, to their loss and at the same time to do something proactive. And I think, you know, organizing in, in victim spaces is a really important place to start. There are many poor people who are the victims of crime, people of color. People of color and poor people are actually dramatically more likely to be the victim of homicide and rape and burglary and property crimes uh, than people who are affluent. And their perspectives are not typically the dominant perspectives. And a lot of those communities realize uh, that there is no big line that separates victims and offenders. And they appreciate that it's more complicated. And I think there's some a natural, intuitive openness uh, to restorative justice in those communities. And that's where I think uh, we need to spend a lot more time, is talking to people who've actually been uh, the targets of some of this violence and who have had to deal with some of this loss, and, 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 and getting them to understand uh, that there's another way uh, to think about how we move forward, other than just simply beating up on the person who's committed the crime which can ultimately be destructive, not just for the offender, but for all of us. Mm, thank you for that question, Catherine. And uh, if, if I might humbly add a few things to that, Brian, I just want to say um, from my experience in talking with um, so many of you, uh, including our honored guests like yourself tonight, Brian, would you say that one of the, the ways also is really to, to, to meet them where they're at as far as sharing just like the basic understanding that, um, that is, is being proven more and more in so many different states and communities of the, the cost savings, if nothing else, of, of diverting our kids from, you know, from the judicial process, from incarceration time. It's, it's astronomical, isn't it? And, um, and giving the statistical evidence of... of uh, how stakeholders really um, more, more than not, meaning the victims and the offenders as well as the community, are satisfied, uh, if not quite satisfied, with this process and are able to, to continue on in uh, meeting their agreements for that making right and repairing of the harm. Absolutely. And, I, yeah, I think that we do have to be um, willing and capable of engaging people where they are. I couldn't agree more with that, that you can't expect people to come. You can't just put up a tent that says restorative justice and, and wait for people to show. We actually have to go to where people are and to talk about the things that matter to them. And you're right, Molly, that for a, a lot of people in our society, cost matters, money matters. And the fact that you know we're now spending $80 billion a year to keep people in jails and prisons, that's you know, we were spending about $6 billion in 1980, now we're up to $80 billion, uh, and that we're basically taking money from education and from health and human services and from care for the elderly and, and care for the environment, and we're wasting it in this abusive uh, style of punishment. I think it's an important point to emphasize because uh, we can actually save money and save lives and create healing uh, for victims and, 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 and offenders that desperately is needed, and I do think that that's an important way to think about this topic. Mm. And Brian, I'd like to take a walk back to an earlier part of our conversation, which weaves in with almost everything we're talking about, 
um, as the baseline perhaps. And given your broad, you have such broad wisdom in so many areas of this field and beyond in so many ways, and I just so appreciate that about you. Um, can you speak about, the? I believe it was the Department of Justice in around 1973 made a statement, and I believe it was an official statement, but perhaps you can correct me and fill, me, fill us all in a little bit more, about the fact that criminal, uh, our criminal system was only making more criminals. Incarcerating people was only making uh, you know, pr more prisoners. And do you, can you share a little bit about what happened? Why, why did, if there was that kind of awareness back then, what happened? Well, no, I think you're right. I think most people who are close to the system recognize that what we do when we incarcerate people is, is in and of itself criminal. We, we, um, we restrict their ability to, to grow, to, to live healthy lives. We put them in unhealthy situations. We deprive them. We abuse them. Uh, we now uh, have them overcrowded. Uh, they can't get the care that they need. We've taken education out. And there's no question uh, that it actually contributes to a less safe society. It is making more um, dysfunction. And we have known that for a really long time. Uh, what happened was is that you had political leaders uh, that saw a strategy for political power that meant getting tough on crime. And, and it started with Richard Nixon and, and his effort to, to gain control over the unrest created by the Vietnam War and, and the Civil Rights Movement uh, that then turned into this so-called war on drugs where we actually started criminalizing uh, behaviors and addiction and health care problems that had not previously been crimes. And that's been the biggest reason how and why our criminal justice system has exploded to the point where we now have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. It's, it's this misguided war on drugs. It's our, our kind of desire to be more punitive um, than the next guy uh, that has created this. And it's been very anti-information. Uh, sort of so the fact that we had this information in the early 70s that you're quite right in describing wasn't that uh, useful because we didn't really care about science, we didn't care about whether it was a, a, a rational way, whether it was effective, we only cared about being tough and being harsh and being seen as tough. And that's the dynamic that I think we have to deconstruct, that we have to unravel to get where we're trying to go. Mm. I'd like to bring into the circle now a pre-submitted question and then we'll go to another live question. Again, if you'd like to get involved in the live conversation, press 1 on your telephone keypad. You can also do that on Skype if you're Skyping in, pressing 1. Um, so this is from Martha, and she asks, um, she wants to know more about the uh, particular and specific programs or efforts that you, you might be aware of or that EJI is working with um, particular to assisting juvenile offenders. And um, she also is wondering how individuals and groups working outside the judicial system can promote and ensure uh, both restorative justice ideals and practices, but also a broader scope of programs and practice, practices, because we know that there, there aren't, and it's not always called restorative justice, but there, there are definitely programs that are are similar in nature that are trying to address this serious problem. So could you right. speak to that, please, Doug? Sure, sure. 
Well, EJI's um, primary focus right now in the area of, 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 of child rights and, and, and juveniles is actually um, focusing on uh, three things. We are, we are very concerned about um, the, the placement of children in adult jails and prisons. There are about 30 states that still permit children under the age of 18 to be housed in adult jails and prisons. And what we know is that when that happens, these kids are dramatically more likely to be the victims of sexual assault and, and, and violence. They are targeted. Um, the suicide rate goes up about five times. And so we have a real um, commitment to trying to end uh, the placement of children in adult jails and prisons. Our second program area is actually directed at creating a minimum age for trying children as adults. Now, there are 15 states that have no minimum age where kids 8, 9, 10 sometimes face adult prosecution. Uh, we think that no child uh, under a certain age should be prosecuted as an adult. And whether that age is 14 or 16, you know, we'd like it to, it to actually be as high as possible. But we think there ought to be some minimum age because the very youngest kids are, are the most vulnerable and they're the ones that are, that are really sometimes suffering the most uh, with our lack of attention to child status in the criminal justice system. And then finally, we're doing a lot of work to try to end extreme punishments for kids, and that's why we've been focused on ending death in prison sentences for children. Uh, we've argued, we've just won two cases at the U.S. Supreme Court banning mandatory life without parole sentences for kids and uh, categorically banning, uh, banning uh, life without parole for kids convicted of non-homicides. And we're representing hundreds of those kids. And so a lot of the work is kind of litigation, but a lot of it is kind of education and, and just reform work and advocacy work. And anybody can play a role. We've got hundreds of kids that never hear from anybody on the outside. And we try to connect them with people who are just willing to be pen pals, who are just willing to correspond to them and represent something hopeful. Um, we have kids that have particular needs. Uh, that um, can be met by people who are capable or willing to visit or capable of willing to share. Uh, and that creates real opportunities for restoration and progress. And then there are this kind of this growing population of people coming out of jails and prisons, uh, people who went in as young kids uh, who are now coming out and they have very particular reentry needs. And one of the challenges is that most of the reentry programs in this country are really designed for adults. They're designed for people who had some life history in the free world as an adult before they went to jail or prison. Uh, with 250,000 kids in prisons that don't have that experience, uh, we find that there's a critical need for just ordinary people to provide reentry support and services and life skills and guidance uh, to, to people coming out of jail and prison who have never lived in the free world as an adult. They look like adults. They might even be in their 30s or 40s but they are really effectively 14 or 15 when it comes to independent living. And creating um, an, a community of people who will identify those people and reach out to those people and help those people as they come out of jails and prisons is a really critical need that any intentional person with a commitment to these issues can help us uh, meet. Mm. I want to ask you about people with mental health issues. And um, you know, obviously, legitimate mental health problems. Um, is it true that in the United States, the statistics are probably more than what we really truly know of just how many people have um, mental illness 
and who are incarcerated, given, given the history of what, what we've seen around the downsizing of programs. And, and uh, could, you, could you speak to that? Because you're so great with these statistics. And I know sure. that, yeah. Tell us more yeah. about what EJI may, what, what, what your position is, um, yeah. and also if you're working with, with these programs that might be reforming and raising awareness. Sure. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We've got hundreds of thousands of people in jails and prisons uh, that are there largely because they have disabilities, mental disabilities. You know, and it really started with the deinstitutionalization that took place in the, in the 50s and, and 40s. I mean, there was a, a legitimate concern about what was happening uh, to, to people with mental disability in these institutional settings, and we reacted very strongly to that and deinstitutionalized in most states. But we actually didn't commit any resources to helping people with legitimate disability cope with that disability. And that meant that uh, without a, a functioning mental health system that was being proactive, the criminal justice system stepped in. And so people dealing with schizophrenia, people dealing with um, bipolar disorder, people dealing with depression, people dealing with a range of disabilities who were poor and vulnerable uh, ended up being arrested for one minor thing after the other, sometimes not always minor things. Uh, and then we put them in a criminal justice system that is completely uninterested in managing people with disabilities. And by warehousing folks and depriving them of their medicines and depriving them of the care they need, we've made a bad situation much, much worse. And so what that means is that, um, you know, there's every reason to believe that, uh, you know, a, a huge proportion of the prison population is suffering from disabilities that require medical management. And people don't get it, and the absence of that medical attention aggravates their condition uh, makes them less safe, makes them less prepared to get home, makes it more difficult for them to make parole. And we are, are effectively punishing people because they are disabled. And that's mm. a challenge that we've got to recognize and reorient around if we're going to make any progress in dealing with disability in this country. Well, I, I want to just say how appreciative I am of the fact that on the EJI website, I believe there's a, a photograph that speaks volumes. If you if you see it, um, you you can't help but just feel <laughs> deeply moved in whatever way. As far as like the atrocity that ha is being committed on some of our youth, especially youth suffering from a mental illness disability, and uh, I believe that that photograph may maybe I can't be completely sure about it, but maybe you can tell me, Brian um, comes from a very important action group up in, I believe, Minnesota called Citizens for Prison Reform. And a long time ago, actually, we had the founder, Lois DeMott, on our show. And her son, Kevin, was um, chained and bound uh, with a helmet on. And I've heard of instances of people being thrown in the hole for the fact that they're having psychotic episodes. The hole, of course, meaning solitary confinement. And we know right. that that's not a way to, to help people with this disability. Right. Yeah, no, sadly that happens far too, uh, far too often. Um, I think the photograph you're talking about was actually from an institution in Texas, and, and uh -huh. it was actually um, a, a kind of a facility there. But, but it's, you're right in describing that practice uh, as a common practice in lots of jurisdictions where 
you know, children with disabilities, uh, adults with disabilities, you know, they're put in situations where you've got these people who don't have any mental health training, no skills, no preparation, and so they just go into extreme control. And, of course, that aggravates somebody in the midst of a psychotic episode. And we've had actually people die uh, who are having epileptic seizures, uh, and the guards, instead of treating them as somebody with a medical uh, disorder that requires uh, medical intervention, they treat them as someone who's being, uh, 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 you know, non-responsive, disobeying a direct order to stand uh, quietly, and they might mace them or spray them with a fire extinguisher. And, of course, that, that kind of response aggravates uh, somebody dealing with a seizure, and, and we've had cases where people have actually died because of these kinds of responses. And so the disconnect between a system that is only interested in punishment Dealing with a community of people who are actually suffering from disability uh, creates a whole other kind of injustice, a whole other kind of cruelty uh, that we've got to sensitize ourselves to confront. Mm. Let's take another live question tonight. Uh, welcome, Jim. You're live. Hi. Good evening. Thanks, thanks for taking the call. <clears throat> First of all, Brian, I've been following your career for some time. Thanks for your work and your service. You're, you're just doing great work. Thank you. Um, I'm an old school lawyer. I've probably been a lawyer almost 44 years now, I guess. And, and uh, one of the things I learned long, long, long time ago is just follow the money when you want to understand what's going on. And the work that we're doing up here in this little rural community in Northern California in the foothills has to do with restorative practices in schools and follow the money cuts in our favor because when kids are getting kicked out of school, schools lose money. And so um, among the many reasons why it's a good, it's an easy sell in our community, or it's turning out to be an easy sell, even with all the pressures on the, on the teachers and the schools, is, is that it really makes for a much happier environment, and it saves money. And the saves money is actually one of the really dispositive, positive things that's happened. So I'm one of those guys that's encouraged. In the, my, my experience is in the, when you start talking about adult and juvenile justice systems, following the money leads to privatization of prisons and uh, where the money is, is uh, doesn't cut in your favor. So um, we're just trying to start early, early on and maybe stay out of that system altogether and bring the community together. And it seems to be working. So I'm encouraged. That's all I wanted to say. Well, I think that's great. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, identifying these points of intervention where we have the ability to kind of show really positive outcomes is important. And I couldn't agree with you more that um, there is tremendous cost savings to be made. I mean, we spend in some of these states $50,000, $60,000 a year to keep a person uh, behind bars. And when you just think about what a school system could do with a fraction of that money, one-third of that money, uh, to spend per student each year, I mean, we would do all kinds of amazing things, and everybody would benefit from that. And if there's been any upside to the recession, and the economic challenges that this country has faced in the last five years, it's been that we've had to recognize that we cannot afford uh, mass imprisonment. We cannot continue uh, to spend $80 billion a year and, and keep people in jail and prison, particularly when we're not yielding anything from that. And becoming smarter on crime and smarter about the way we talk about the cost of some of these misguided policies is, I think, an essential uh, tool in changing the di discourse and I agree with you. I'm also very encouraged. We had for the first time in the last 40 years a leveling off of the incarceration rate, which I think is largely a function of people 
talking more about the cost of mass imprisonment and, and pushing people to recognize that we can't afford it uh, for economic reasons, for all of, in addition to all of the moral and social justice reasons that we articulate. Yeah, the problem is the guys with the power are making the money and running those prisons, and, and that's, a tough, that's a tough fight. It is absolutely right, and, and, and you're right that we've got this, uh, this challenge that we've never had really before where you've got people who are literally spending money uh, to keep people in prison and to create policies that uh, foster uh, more imprisonment and more uh, detention and more incarceration, and, when they, and they just go from group to group. You know, they've exhausted, you've know, got one out of three black males expected to go to jail in prison, so they exhaust that community. Then they uh, go into the disabled, and then they go into children, and now they're going to people who are undocumented. We're now locking up thousands of people who are undocumented as a new way of managing our, our, our issues around immigration, and it's just an expansive uh, quest uh, to profit from our ability and willingness to punish people, and that has to be disrupted. Thank you yep. so much, Jim, for being with us tonight. And, of course, way back, um, I, I've been thinking a lot about the, the John F. Kennedy era and given his 50th anniversary from the assassination murder of, of him. And uh, President Eisenhower, I believe, as he was passing the torch to JFK, said something very poignantly about the military-industrial complex. And um, certainly I think the term has been used very uh, in the last maybe five, ten years, Brian, of the prison-industrial complex. So be very wary of that. Um, I'd like to go back to another live question here tonight as we move towards our closing in a few minutes. Um, Michelle, welcome. You're live. Michelle, are you with us? You're live. Okay, we'll come back to you, Michelle. I just want to thank everybody. Uh, we're going to close up here in just a few minutes, but uh, we have a constituency tonight, just to make it very clear, the robust circle from all over the United States that has joined us live tonight as well as Canada. And you can access the archives of, of tonight's broadcast and, and dialogue, as well as all of the ones that we have on this series. You can go to restorativejusticeontherise.com for more on that. Thanks for your patience, too. We're, we're fulfilling the archives and, and uh, doing an overhaul on that website. So make sure to come back often to check those out. And it's an open source place for information, for archives, and resources in the field of restorative justice and beyond. So we hope you'll visit us soon and come back again and again. So I'd like to go over to another live question. Um, Patrick, you're live. Welcome. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Can you hear you, me? You, you sound great, Patrick. You're live. Thank you. I, I just, I just want to uh, recognize uh, the passing of Nelson Mandela and their I would really love to hear some words from our, our guest speaker about that, that human being and what he's done for us all. Well, I, I appreciate uh, your, your raising that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely, uh, I think like most of us, um, you know, mourning uh, his loss but celebrating his life. I mean, I think, you know, what Nelson Mandela did and what he represents is so important uh, for people in this country, um, because South Africa, like the United States, has been burdened with 
you know, decades of abuse and, and, and distrust and uh, people abusing power and creating all kinds of suffering and uh, the use of prisons to kind of silence a, a whole community of people. And, you know, he really represented the, the, the commitment of truth and reconciliation. I mean, he never resisted uh, telling the truth. He did it even when it was uncomfortable. He was someone who clearly understood the importance of changing narratives, being hopeful, and, and sometimes being uncomfortable. And he did it with such uh, vigor and commitment that even prison uh, could not silence his witness. It could not silence his um, ability to kind of uh, radicalize a, a nation that had been oppressed for decades. And I think, you know, in my mind, he really does represent the importance of how we can overcome really difficult challenges if we just have the courage to be honest and tell the truth about the damage we've done, the trauma we've created, the injuries we've sustained in, in abusing power. And then we reconcile ourselves to that history and we try to make our way forward because he didn't just want to you know, make accusations and talk about how difficult things were. He really wanted to reconcile uh, the, the history uh, of South Africa with a future that is committed to uh, progress and, and openness and inclusiveness. And I think he's really one of a remarkable people of, of the last, um, last century. Uh, and it is, he's absolutely um, deserving of our time and our attention and our respect and our reflections at the point of his passing. And uh, I think we, you know, have a lot still to learn uh, from Nelson Mandela. I don't think what he has to teach us has yet been fully consumed, uh, fully appreciated. Um, and I hope that uh, this moment of passing creates an opportunity for reflection that we can more deeply internalize and appreciate uh, what it means to live lives in a community where we are committed to truth and reconciliation and peace and justice. Mm. I had no idea about that news, Patrick. Thank you so much for bringing that into the dialogue tonight. And in honor, such deep honor of Nelson Mandela's life, we go into closing tonight. Um, Brian, any concluding thoughts on how people can take action right now in their community, in their lives, as far as getting involved with your work, with the Equal Justice Initiative, um, wh what can people do right now, sure. tomorrow even? Well, I appreciate that, Molly. Well, I do hope that uh, listeners will visit our website. We actually have a bunch of um, campaigns right now that we're doing that we would love to involve any and everyone. Um, on our racial justice work, we have um, kind of a racial history calendar that we will make available to individuals, to groups, at pretty much no cost. We asked for some donations to just help cover the cost of shipping. But we found the calendars as to be a really helpful way to create dialogue and discussion around some of these issues uh, relating to, to justice and equity. And you're welcome to just email uh, us at eji.org and say, I'd like a calendar, I'd like a slavery report, I'd like 10 calendars, I'd like to bring calendars to my community group, uh, to my circle. And we'd be very ha happy to facilitate that. Uh, you can sign up to be a correspondent with some of our kids who need pen pals, who are just looking for connections. Um, you can just monitor what's going on so that you're informed and can ask good questions when these issues uh, play themselves out uh, in, your, in your community. 
And then we identify other groups in different parts of the country that are also um, people that we think you can connect with if you want something more local, uh, and we're happy to always uh, play that role. And then the only other thing I'll say to just kind of end this is that I do think, I hope that people uh, will be um, uh, will be mindful that this is not always easy, that it's often challenging, um, and there are times when you can get worn down. I, I put this in the TED Talk, and I'll end with it. I had the privilege of knowing uh, Rosa Parks. She used to come back to Montgomery quite a bit, and when Ms. Parks would come, uh, I would be invited to spend time listening to her, and she'd have conversations with these two other women, uh, Johnny Carr, who was the architect of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, um, Virginia Durr, whose husband Clifford Durr was uh, Dr. King's attorney. And these women would get together and just talk and talk and talk, and, and Ms. Carr would invite me over. And one day I was over there and listening to them talk, and I would never say a word. I was always instructed just to be quiet and listen, which I did. And after hearing them talk for a couple of hours, Ms. Parks turned to me and she said, Now, Brian, tell me what the Equal Justice Initiative is. Tell me what EJI is trying to do. And I got permission to speak for Ms. Carr, and I, and I gave her my whole rap. I just started talking. I said, well, we're trying to do something about the death penalty and excessive punishment and mass incarceration and the prosecution of children and racial bias and discrimination against the poor and the plight of the disabled and conditions of confinement. I gave her my whole rap, and when I finished, uh, she looked at me. She said, mm, 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 that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. And that's when Ms. Carr leaned forward, and she put her finger in my face, and she said, that's why you've got to be brave. Uh, brave, brave, and I would just say to our to your listeners um, tonight that, and those of you who especially are feeling a little tired, uh, just continue to be brave because you'll find it sometimes actually in these moments of crisis and fatigue that uh, our spirits actually are strongest and most prepared to do the difficult work, the truthful work, the honest work that ultimately makes this country uh, better and stronger and more just. And I'm excited that there is a community of people interested in gathering in calls like this. And my, uh, my, my final word is just to be brave, to be courageous, and know that you're in community uh, with a network of people and a history of people uh, that continue to fight day in and day out. Mm-mm-mm. It's been an honor and a great pleasure to have you with us tonight, Brian. And on behalf of the Peace Alliance, and all of the great work that so many of you are doing out there in the field. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I encourage you once again, please, to go check out that TED Talk. Go to eji.org. There's a mailing list you can sign up for there. And also, in great thanks to Dan Kahn, our National Field Director, who earlier encouraged everyone to stay in touch. You can email him at dan at peacealliance.org for more information about action teams. So it has been a pleasure as always. Join us next week. This has been Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good night, everyone. <laughs>